Good morning. Uh, welcome, and uh, I often forget to welcome those who are joining us online. Um, I usually remember you ahead of time and then forget once I'm up here because I'm, I'm looking at these people. So, but welcome to you who are uh, joining us from home as well. It's, it's good to be gathered, uh, whether here in person or you're tuning in from abroad uh, or uh, from afar. Today we're going to be continuing in and, and nearly wrapping up a new series, well, a new but short series that we've been in called The Promises of God. And uh, it's, we've been in them for about six weeks, I think. Next week will be the last week where we'll be in this series before we'll jump back into the Gospel of Matthew and concluding that uh, study that we've been in for the last, better part of the last couple of years. Um, as I was preparing this week for uh, this message on the promises of God, one of the things that probably has been alluded to throughout but just dawned on me in a more significant way this week is that when we talk about God's promises, I think at least my inclination is to think first about what that means that he does for me. God has made a promise, so what do I get out of it? What does he do for me? And that's true. That's not wrong. One of the things I realized this week is that we can kind of reverse engineer, if you will, those promises. Uh, They're about more than just what he does for us. They tell us about something about who he is. They tell us something about his nature and his character. And so when we talked about the first few promises, God's presence, that he promises his presence, he welcomes, that he listens, all of those promises speak to us about something about his nature and character, that he's a relational God, that he's a personal God, that he wants to be and is with us, with you, um, and wants to relate to you. When we talked a couple of weeks ago about the promise that he forgives That's not just something he does for you, forgives you. It tells us something about his nature and his character. It tells us that he's a God of mercy, and he's inclined that way. Pastor Matt spoke last week on the promise that he helps. It's not just about practically God coming alongside and helping us with the things that we need help with. It tells us something about his nature and character. It tells us that he is a God who is generous, and more than that, who's graciously generous, because so much of, if not all, that God helps you and I with is a pure product of his grace, something that we don't deserve that he gives to us. And so today, when we talk about this promise, he exalts, which is kind of an antiquated term, not one that I use in my everyday vernacular and language. It means to lift up or to elevate or to magnify. God exalts his people. As we talk about this, this isn't just about God lifting up the humble. It tells us something about who he is. And today, I think what it tells us is that we We're made by and serve and worship a great God. It tells us about his greatness. Now the connection may not be as evident as those others from God lifting us up to his greatness, but I hope that by the end of our time today, you'll see that is the implication. Um, Because it's really important actually, if we are then to enter into and receive this promise of God's exaltation in our life. To do this, our starting point um, to examine this promise that God makes that he exalts, is going to come from 1 Samuel, chapters 1 and 2. We could, we could have gone in a lot of different places, and later on today we will look at some other corollary passages, passages that kind of showcase similar themes. But I want to start in this passage because it's a story. Narratives are sometimes more impactful to enter into truth. Um, so it's a story about a woman who we see God exalt in her humility. He lifts her up in a significant way as she humbles herself before him. 
And then we'll, we'll kind of go from there using her story as an illustration and an example for us to understand this promise today. So I'm going to recap for you chapter one, best I can, and then we'll actually read chapter two, which is this psalm, this song, this poem of sorts that Hannah writes in response to God exalting her and lifting her up. So this is a story, as I just alluded to, about a woman named Hannah. And she is the wife of a man named Elkanah. And Elkanah actually has two wives. Peninnah is the other one, and Hannah. This is in a period of time in, in Israel's history in which polygamy was a thing. It was just fairly normal. That doesn't mean that it was God's perfect will. It means that it was his permissive will. All right, we look to pre-fall creation before sin entered in the world for God's patterns that are to be his perfect will, and that is marriage between one man and one woman. And we don't need to look any further than the circumstances that unfold in this passage to understand it was not a good setup. Polygamy was not a good arrangement, and it led to some pretty destructive things. So Elkanah, he's a good man in his own right, but he has these two wives, and Peninnah is very fruitful, fertile. She's had lots of kids. Hannah has not been able to have any. And there's a rivalry that exists between them. It's kind of one-sided. Peninnah uses this as an opportunity to leverage her position as the one who is fruitful and in her mind, therefore superior and more beneficial to Elkanah. And she rubs it in and she derides Hannah and she, and she, she just lays it on thick to the point at which multiple times throughout this story, we see Hannah was grieved deeply in her heart. I mean, in part, that was just because of how significant it was in that time to be able to bear a child if you were a woman. But part of that, too, was just that it was constantly in her face um, because of Peninnah, um, Elkanah's other wife. And so one year as a family, they went to offer sacrifices at the tabernacle. That was the place of worship that God's people, Israel, gathered before Solomon built the first temple. Okay, um, And so they go to... Uh, the tabernacle to offer sacrifices as a family. Um, Peninnah is still rubbing it in. Hannah is so sick to her stomach that she can't eat. And so she, while everybody else is eating, she goes to the temple and she just humbly comes before God through tears, prays and vows that if God would just look upon her affliction and give her a son, she vowed that she would give her son back to the Lord to serve him for the remainder of his days. And just a couple of observations that are real clear when you read the actual text that I'll just point out right now. Number one, Hannah had a faith that God, first of all, was fully aware of her affliction, that he knew her pain, that he knew her suffering, that he was omniscient and present and empathetic in that sense. That's, why, that's a part of why she went to him and a part of what she expresses in her prayer. Second of all, we see faith on her part in her belief in God's sovereignty, his control over even the opening and closing of the human womb. She had that kind of belief and understanding and God's sovereignty and control over his creation. And when you put these things together and you look at her posture, she comes before the Lord in prayer. It's not one of bitterness. It's not one that's demanding. It's not one of scoffing or scolding or keeping God at arm's length. It's one of an incredibly humble posture of complete and utter dependence upon the Lord. She throws himself, herself rather, at his feet, knowing that only he can do something about her plight. Skipping forward a bit, God answers Hannah's prayer. She conceives, she gives birth to a son whose name is Samuel, who 
comes to be very important. I mean, the book is named after him, 1 Samuel. Um, and so she, about three years later, after she's weaned her, her child, weaned Samuel, that's about how long it took that time, she brings him back to the tabernacle on one of the family's journeys there, and she, she fulfills her vow. She gives him, in a sense, back to the Lord um, to serve him all the rest of his days. So he becomes an understudy to Eli, who was the priest at that time, and he would come to be a great prophet. He was the prophet who anointed King David, you may remember if you're familiar with that part of the Bible. And so it's a great time of rejoicing for Hannah. Obviously, there must have been great grief in her heart over the fact that she was giving her son back to the Lord, that he would spend his days apart from her serving him. But nonetheless, we're told that she rejoiced greatly. Her, her joy was not just in the change of her circumstances, as we'll find out as we read. It was in who her God had proven himself to be. And so this leads us to chapter 2, which follows the narrative with, it says, a, a prayer that Hannah prayed. It really is written in kind of a psalm-like form. It may have been something that she actually read, like a live poetry reading, or, or sung in praise uh, before her fellow Israelites and friends and family as an act of worship. And so this part we'll actually read together, and it'll be on the screen behind me as well. And to clarify some things, I'll just probably stop and point out a few things along the way. 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, first thing I want to point out here is that it's easy to confuse exult and exalt. In fact, before preaching the sermon, I'm pretty sure I didn't know the difference, but I do now. So to exalt means to rejoice in. To exalt is the word we're looking at today in the promise that God lifts up, that he elevates. Um, when used in reference to God, it's glorifying him, exalting him, right? So to lift up and to elevate. So it's saying, she's saying, my heart exalts, rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Horn was a figure of speech um, in ancient Israel that meant strength. So she's found this renewed spiritual and emotional strength that's been lifted up in the Lord because of how he's proven himself to her, to be a God who exalts. She goes on to, to say, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. It's really important to me to point out here, because this could be a source of confusion, that Hannah's derision here, ridicule, is, is kind of what that word means, isn't her doing the same thing to Peninnah that Peninnah did to her. Because she tells us what the source of derision was. It was because she rejoiced in God's salvation and his deliverance and his provision in this miraculous way in her life. So it wasn't as if she was ridiculing Peninnah, ha-ha, you were wrong all along, now we're equals. It's She's praising the Lord and by the way, enemies here is plural, so anybody who is questioning her faith or her value is being derided just by virtue of, my God is great, and he is worthy of my worship, and her joy in and of itself is a derision of her enemies. That's what she is saying here. There is none holy, she goes on to say, like the Lord. We just sang about that in the song right before the sermon. Because there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. This is Going back to that theme of greatness that I said would be so important for us to recognize as an attribute of God that comes all out of this promise. Um, she's saying, there's none that compare with your greatness. Talk no more. Now she's, this could sound as if it's a, a, a scathing chastisement of those who will fit this description. I think it's more of a sober warning to them and an invitation to them 
to humble themselves before God. She goes on to say, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. She goes on to say, The bows, as in war bows, an instrument of war, are might of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full, as in they're no longer hungry, they're not hungry because they had means, have hired themselves out now for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. Hannah, by the way, ended up having six children, five after Samuel, so it's not a mistake or an error in her counting of the number of kids she had. Seven is just a number that meant perfection um, in ancient Israel. So the barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn, um, withering away. Probably the idea here is, is now barren themselves. So what we see is this great reversal of fortunes by the hand of the Lord, by the sovereign hand of God in these people's lives who are proud. She goes on to say in probably one of the greatest statements about God's sovereignty in the Bible, the Lord kills and brings to life He brings down to Sheol, which is a term for the grave, and raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He is the one who brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. That, guys, is the thesis statement, if you will, of this whole psalm and of this promise. Not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And that most likely is a prophetic foresight on Hannah's thoughts, spirit-inspired, to Jesus. Um, I won't spend a lot of time there today, which is why I point that out now. Many scholars believe that that, that actually just prophetically pointing to Jesus, the one who would be our great king, the one who would be the anointed one to reign and rule on the earth. So what we see through this story about Hannah and that she expresses for herself so clearly and beautifully in this psalm, she was a recipient of this promise that God exalts. Not just that, but that God lifts up in particular those who are lowly in heart, the humble. He delights to elevate those who are humble, who look to him for what only he can provide. That's what Hannah was doing. She went to the only one who she knew could provide in her circumstances. Now, we talk about humility a lot. Um, We have to, we should. It's a really important theme in the Bible and as Christians for us to understand. So in, in real brief, Just a reminder, when we're talking about humility, what is it? One of the helpful expressions you may or may not have heard, but for me, um, is humility isn't thinking less about yourself. Um, It's thinking about yourself less. Okay, it's not thinking less about yourself, self-deprecating, you know, hyper-navel-gazing, I'm the worst person in the world. Like, at some point, that crosses a line into unbelief because that's not who God has declared us to be in Christ, Right? It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. And that flows out of seeing the greatness of God rightly and seeing yourself objectively in comparison to him. And Hannah, Hannah knew 
the greatness of God. That's why we see her respond in humility and go to him. She understood that God's greatness was unsurpassed, evidenced by her expression that in his sovereignty, he was the one in charge of death and life, making rich, making poor, opening and closing her womb even. And so she humbly goes to him, pleading for him to do what only he could in her life and that she could not. And God exalts her. He lifted her up. He provided for her from her position of humility and reliance and faith. Now, I want to be real clear about something here. God doesn't need us to be able to declare or see him as great for his own sake. He's not an egomaniac in that sense that needs our affirmation of what's already true about him. Rather, God wants us to see his greatness for our sake. Because to the degree that we see his greatness is to the degree that we will see our neediness for what only he can provide. Instead, if we remain blind to his greatness, then what happens is space opens up in our heart for things like pride and arrogance to flourish. And and, and then we will never look beyond ourselves for those things that we truly need, our greatest needs. And that can become eternally dangerous. Okay, now a portion of of Hannah's psalm that we just read, you may have heard it and thought, man, that's harsh. Especially verse five, the the reversal of fortunes that God in his sovereignty brings about, the bows of the mighty that were broken, those who used to be well-fed now hiring themselves out for bread, the one who had many children now becomes forlorn. And God is the one who is seen here as bringing about this great hardship in the lives of those who are described proud. That could seem really harsh. In one sense, I suppose that it is. I would argue that this is actually a great act of mercy on God's part in the lives of the proud, as all of it serves to teach mankind that it is not by might that man shall prevail. Because as long as we're living under this delusion that we can achieve all that we need by our own strength, will not only miss out on the true source of every physical and emotional need that we have, but will miss out on the only one who can provide for our deepest need in our souls of redemption and forgiveness through Christ. In other words, we'll miss the cross and the meaning of what Jesus did for us there. The promise for today is God exalts. He exalts his people. But if we learn anything and can summarize Hannah's story, we could add to it this, humility precedes exaltation. Or put a little bit differently, the prerequisite for God to exalt his people is an expression of humility on their part. And I want you to see this because this is one of the most fundamental and common um, characteristics of discipleship that we see in the Bible. And I'm going to run through quickly here. Um, just a sampling of the different, especially New Testament passages in which we see this pattern of humility preceding exaltation. A lot of these will come from Matthew's gospel, which we've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years. Some of these will be familiar passages. Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus says in the Beatitudes section of that gospel, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. What is it to be poor in spirit, to have poverty of spirit? It's just another way to basically express humility. Humility precedes exaltation. Exaltation in this sense being elevated and given the place of members and citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Matthew 16, 24 and 25, here Jesus talking about what discipleship consists of, says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the thing to note here is that to, to, do, to lay down that which is most precious to you, to sacrifice your own life, has to be preceded by humility. That would be the fuel to do such a thing. And Jesus is saying that then, that humility of laying down your life is a prerequisite to find true life, which is being lifted up. It's exaltation. So there's the pattern again. Matthew 18, 1 to 4, Jesus again teaching his disciples about uh, the, the economy of the kingdom of heaven, invites a small child to come to him. He asks them the question, who's the greatest? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he proceeds to explain to them that it's whoever humbles themselves like this little child that will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility precedes exaltation. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, Jesus tells a parable about these laborers that were hired to work in a vineyard. Some of them were hired in the morning. Others were hired later in the afternoon. At the end of the day, all of them were paid the same amount, and they did not like, some of them did not like that, especially those who were hired in the morning because they'd worked longer. So they end up complaining. And Jesus points out here that it evidenced the fact that they are blind to the reality of the master's greatness and grace in their life. And so he concludes, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. See, the ones who are most grateful for what God has done for them, those are the ones who are humbled because they realize that they're in the presence of greatness, and it's they that will be exalted, Jesus says. Two more, John 13, 1 to 17. It's the scene where Jesus, before the Passover feast, the final week of his earthly life, before they, they eat that feast together, he washes his disciples' feet, which we just can't understand how incredibly condescending of an act that was on Jesus' part, because we don't have anything like I mean, maybe we could get it, wrap our minds around that if we thought about washing you know, each other's feet every night when we came home. This was a task that was, uh, that was suited in that time for only the lowliest of servants. And here's Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, and he goes on to teach them that this is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of those who enter my kingdom. That while I am your teacher and your Lord, he says, if I'm doing this for you, then how much more should you do this for others? And so he teaches them they ought to humbly serve one another likewise. Humility precedes exaltation. Finally, he couldn't say it any more clearly and explicitly. Luke chapter 18. It's this parable about, the parable is a story, by the way. Jesus taught a lot through telling stories. We call them parables. So there's, there's a tax collector and a Pharisee. Pharisees were the religious elite of the time, and tax collectors were loathed and hated in Israel. They were considered traitors amongst their own people, and they both go down or go up to the temple, and they're both praying, and the Pharisee is praying this prayer of, God, thank you that I'm not like all these sinners, you know, especially this example, you know, you know sh showcase A that I have over here of this tax collector. Thank you, I'm not like him. And the tax collector, Jesus said, in instead prayed this prayer pleading for, with God for mercy, beating his breast, recognizing the greatness and holiness of God in his own sin. And Jesus says, 
it's that tax collector who went away justified. And in as clear terms as we've come across so far, he concludes that parable saying, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There it is. In fact, it's everywhere in scripture, everywhere in Jesus' teaching. This is the economy of the kingdom, the way the kingdom works, that humility precedes exaltation, which is the polar opposite of the way that this world works that we live in, right? It tells us that we should put our own interests first. Take care of yourself first before you take care of others. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You are the source of your success in life. All these different messages. And that approach to life is so deadly. Because there's more at stake than just the earthly examples that Hannah gives in her own psalm of those who were proud and were, were humbled circumstantially in this life. See, the reason that God is so eager to humble the self-exalted and to exalt the humble is because without seeing him rightly and without seeing ourselves rightly in return, we will miss the necessity of the cross, the necessity of Jesus' suffering and death there because we have greatly sinned against a great God and we are desperately in need of what only he can provide. Let me put it this way. Maybe this will be a little bit more helpful. To the degree that we recognize our utter dependence upon God for our desperate spiritual state, the desperate state of our souls, is the degree to which we will humbly fall at the foot of the cross in worship. Or if we kind of inverse that, if we don't recognize our utter dependence on God and the desperate spiritual state of our souls, we will see no reason to fall humbly at the foot of the cross in worship. Now listen, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, None of us here see perfectly the greatness of God in this side of eternity. None of us see ourselves perfectly in the great chasm and disparity that exists between our holiness and God's holiness. That, that's a given. And we talked about uh, in the He Forgives sermon about sanctification, the fancy word that just means growth and Christ-likeness over the course of our lives. And how we traditionally will think about that is in doing more and more of the things that look like Jesus. yes. But that starts with beholding him, seeing him more clearly. Beholding is becoming, right? And that's a lifelong process that will not culminate until we see him fully, unhindered by sin and eternity, at which point we will then be fully transformed by him. So that's, that's granted, okay? But nonetheless, I want to speak to four different pilgrims um, that probably, probably are sitting here this morning about these different approaches perhaps that you're taking to this promise of he exalts, okay? So four different pilgrim journeys that we're on and, um, and, and what needs to happen in order for you to, to see God's greatness more clearly in yourself in light. First of all, there are the proud that need to humble themselves. There are perhaps some in this room that are the proud and the arrogant. Hannah describes in verse three, who are living as if it's by your own might that you shall prevail and get through this life and succeed. And for you, the, the cross probably matters very little, if at all. For you, you may see yourself functionally, anyway, on par with God and have little need for a savior. And my exhortation to you, my charge to you this morning, will be humble yourself before God. 
humble yourself before God. Stop falling into the temptation to assign greater worth for yourself over those around you horizontally in this world because of your relative success and status as compared to them. Repent of that. Ask God by faith to open your eyes to see his greatness and to see yourself rightly in light of who he is. Trigger that change in your life through faith and action. For example, start serving those around you, maybe in particular those that you're tempted to assign a lower status than yourself. Sacrifice, particularly in those areas that tend to nurture your pride. There was a wise person that once said to me, and I tend to agree, it is far better to humble yourself than for God to humble you. Keep that in mind. First, there are the proud who need to humble themselves. Secondly, there are the broken who are angry with God. The broken who are angry with God. There are some, perhaps, here who feels like life has just kind of fallen out from underneath you. You relate to the ones described here as the bows of the mighty that have been broken, those who used to be full, but now they're hiring themselves out for bread. In other words, you've lost something dear to you that you feel entitled to, and you're angry with God. You blame him, and theologically that may not be wrong. Perhaps these things have come about by his sovereign hand in your life, even as we see in Hannah's song. But here's my word to you. God uses all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even your hardships. And so maybe, just maybe, the only way he could ever get you to fall at the foot of the cross was by stripping you of those things that upheld your pride. And if that's the case, that's not meanness or harshness or cruelty. That is mercy to the uttermost on God's part, sparing you of something far worse. So there are the broken who are angry with God. There are the broken who are weary. These are those who may feel like life's fallen out from underneath you. You've lost some things. You've gone through some or are going through some painful things right now, and it's been for a while. You have no qualms with God. You know that everything that you have is from his hand. You know that everything you have is by his grace. You come before God, like Hannah, humble, acknowledging that he's the only one who can change the circumstances, the pain that you find yourself in, but you, you wait on. I wish I could tell you when in God's perfect wisdom you will experience the fulfillment of this promise. All I can tell you is it's not an if, but a when. He sees you, he sees your affliction, and he will exalt you. There's no doubt about that. That is the promise that he has made to you. He will exalt the humble. My additional encouragement to you, if you find yourself in that situation, invite another Christian into that journey, or Christians. None of us should be walking that journey alone. We weren't designed to. Invite them in so that they can pray for you, so that they can help bear those burdens. Listen, I know we fail and disappoint each other a lot. You may need to humble yourself again by going to some of those same people that are close enough to you to invite them into those places of hardship and remind them, hey, I'm still going through this. I know that's hard, but reach out and avail yourself to God's provision of his people to be praying with you in humility for his help and to help bear those burdens. So there are the broken who are weary right now. Just know that God will be true to his promise. He will come through. He will exalt you. 
Finally, there are the complacent who need to risk faith. In principle, what I'm about to say will apply to any one of us here, but perhaps this is most relevant to the complacent Christian for whom life's going pretty well right now. You know the gospel. You know Christ died for you. You know that you have sin. But you're hesitant to do anything too crazy, anything too sacrificial, to humble yourself too much, because in all honesty, you like the way that life is right now. and You don't want to risk something changing that. So I would just say two things. Number one, understand that the path of humility and discipleship is not optional. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 10, 38 to 39, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the path of humility and discipleship isn't optional, number one, but number two, I would say that if you, if you really believe that God is true and that these promises are true and that God will exalt the humble, then take that step of faith. Start putting others' interests before your own to see whether or not God will fill you up, will be true to his promises. This is a promise that God makes to you. I love the way that King Solomon says it in uh, Proverbs 11.25 This is, I don't know if I'd come across it before, but it just hit me. It's so relevant. One who waters will himself be watered. It's just the promise in different terms. And that came through his own experience of putting God, in a sense, to the test. This is one of the places you can put God to the test because all that means in this instance is you are taking him at his word. The question is, are you willing to? Are we willing to? As we close this morning, we're going to transition to communion in a moment. And I want to end our time by bringing into our sights the pattern of humility before exaltation that we see in God himself. The thing that's so amazing about this fact, that God himself, we see this pattern of humility before exaltation, is that the one who had been sinned against, God who had been sinned against, who could have demonstrated his greatness in the form of his power by crushing the rebellion of mankind and their sin against him. He could have just called it a failed experiment. He could have just gone back to, you know, the, 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 the perfect community that he experienced within the Trinity. That would have been warranted. But he didn't. Because that's not who he is. And in fact, he did the opposite. The only being in the universe who had no need to humble himself, humbled himself to the extent that surpasses anything that you and I could replicate or even imagine. The Apostle Paul captures this in his description of the incarnation, God becoming a man in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and so we'll close with this. He calls the Christians whom he's writing to, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, clung to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God came and walked among us rather than striking us down at great cost to himself to do two things, to show us what true humility looks like and through his suffering and death on the cross to make a way for us to be exalted with him in all of eternity. And so as we continue our time of worship together with communion here in a moment, consider the promise this morning, God exalts the humble. But also consider that it was through Christ's own humility that that promise was secured for us. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray this morning, like we sang about early on, that you would open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Open the eyes of our heart that we may see you, that we may cry, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, because we see you for who you are. In Jesus' name.